Welcome to the Dharma Spring. One thing that comes to mind with this, I mean, it came up with this vow in particular, and I think it's something, I don't know if we've spoken it directly, if I've spoken it directly, but it's kind of woven into this precept work is that this isn't about figuring out the right way or the wrong way to do things, which can sometimes come about with vows and things like this, that we're trying to figure out, so what's the right thing to do? And what's the wrong thing to avoid and not do? And certainly that's the, the, the big question we have, the long arc of trying to live this way. But in the, in the happening of that exploration is noticing how it is to do it the way I do it. When it feels like the, the right thing, how does that work out? When it feels like the wrong thing, well, how does that work out? And so it's not about trying to figure out right and wrong. It's just noticing how is it when this happens, yeah? So that's, uh, I want to be honest about that when we're talking about the vow not to lie. <laughs> and we're kind of given license for it if you look at um, Bodhidharma's commentary when he says, in a world where the Dharma is inexplicable, when you can't say it, when anything you say is going to be a lie, is basically what he's saying. It's inexplicable, the Dharma. And the Dharma, some of you, we had a recent email explaining Dharma. There's I, three main categories of what the Dharma means. Here it's capitalized, so it means the Dharma, the teachings, the way, you know. The way cannot be explained. But if you take the capital off and just make it the word Dharma, it just means things. Like a chair, a cushion, a person is a Dharma. Yeah? So even those things can't be explained. It's almost like a chair speaks well enough for itself. You can't have it, you can't describe the chair better than the chair being the chair describing itself, yeah? And that applies to us individually. I can't say who I am definitively, it's, it's inexpressible, but everything I do is an expression of who I am. And then the other, the third Dharma is the way of being a dharma. Like a chair being a chair, it's the dharma of the chair. Me being me, my way of being me is the dharma of being me. So we have a big dharma that small dharmas are practicing, that us humans are practicing the large way of the dharma as dharmas, and what comes out of us is our own dharma. <laughs> and it's all inexplicable, what he's saying here. So going back to that, Anything we try to say of, yes, this is it, is a lie. You can't avoid it. So here's the free license to own up to everything we do is a lie. <laughs> so don't worry too much about it. And again, don't try to get it right or wrong so much as just notice what it's like to express yourself this way or that way, or to receive expressions this way and that way. Yeah. So I had mentioned in the email, what first comes up for me is how lying can be an act of self-protection. 
you know, when I mess up and make a mistake, I don't want to own up to it right away necessarily because of the consequences I face. And, I, and maybe I'm embarrassed, so I kind of lie. No, I didn't do that. Or no, I went to, you know, whatever. But it's about protecting myself from those consequences. Or there can be lying about myself, portraying myself in a different way because of not wanting to own up to who I actually am. And that might be rooted in a feeling of, you know, not being confident in who I am or even a feeling of shame about who I am. So I might lie and portray myself a little different than what I actually am, lest people should see me and know me. And that, in turn, makes it, well, lest I should see me and know me and face myself. Yeah? So that kind of self-protection, which could be um, something I say that isn't true about me, or something I don't say. And I'm, it can be in a very, I'm thinking in a very uh, benign situation of maybe, and this is a lie, maybe I like One Direction, that band. Maybe I really like One Direction. And I get together with a group of people and they say, oh, One Direction, what a horrible band. And they start saying, anybody who likes One Direction is, is blah, blah, blah. I'm less likely to say, but I like One Direction <laughs> because I don't want them to look at me and think that I'm a schmuck. <laughs> so that's you know, a very benign thing, but it can happen in, in much larger ways, much more um, significant circumstances. But it's you know, me protecting myself from being exposed as who I am. Whether it's something I take pride in that others might find weird, or something I don't take pride in that I want to hide and keep others from knowing. So, that comes up, you know. And then there's that thing of, if I tell a lie, there's a, I mean, there's one other aspect of, I know I messed up, and I'm going to remedy the situation. But I don't own up to messing up right away because I'd rather remedy it and then have it fixed, and then spill the guts, my guts, spill the beans, yeah? Say, well, this is how it was now, but originally I did this. Or if, I'm, if I can do it well enough, I don't even have to own up to the original stuff. I can just, ta-da, it's fixed. But that creates that thing of having to spend energy supporting the narrative of the lie and keeping that going and not letting that get seen through until I take care of the business behind the scenes, yeah? So it can be really nasty business and take up a lot of energy and um, oh, the webs we weave when at first we plot to deceive. Uh, maybe it's not plotting to deceive, it's just I started the snowball of deception rolling and whoa, it's getting bigger. I've got to, ah, and I've got to deal with the thing. Ah. <laughs> so I can really split my energy apart doing that. I noticed that. And that's what the thing is. I had, I'd, Hmm, maybe it's selfish. It's not so much in those moments that I want to be honest. It's just like, oh, it takes so much work to uphold the lies. I want to relieve myself of that work. <laughs> so self-serving, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that comes up is 
protection of other, lying to protect others. So, that could be in the realm of withholding, to, you know, not saying the truth to that person because it could hurt them and you don't want to hurt their feelings. And, um, so you withhold information or omit or just keep silent. And that's, that's a form of not being truthful, but it might be helpful. Maybe you don't need to say that thing. Maybe that's me wanting to vent and get some stuff out of my system that I've, that that's more about me saying it than it is helping the other person. But then there's the harm I can cause. We don't have a, a heater vent blowing, but we got a muffler. <laughs> that one. <laughs> um, but it may be, you know, helpful for me to speak that truth and even though it's a, it's a harsh truth, needs to be said. But then I can be there to help, if wanted, navigate the territory afterward, that kind of thing. But it seems, well, that would require me to take on some responsibility and obligation in the situation, and maybe I'd rather not do that, so I'm just not going to say anything at all, even if it would be helpful. Yeah. And then there's the other side of it, too, of pumping up somebody more than than you intend, or, oh yeah, you're great, when you're thinking, not so great. <laughs> but we do those kind of lies for others to protect them, not to, to protect them from ourselves, maybe, our perceptions, but also to support and encourage them. So is that a bad thing or a good thing? I don't know. If it just becomes our habit of never being truthful, if we say those things and begin to believe our projections and our lies and not actually looking at the situation, that could be harmful. And if we just have a habit of seeing things but never owning up to how we see them, that, that could be harmful for ourselves as well. But just, you know, the main point is to notice that protection can go towards the self in the same way as it can go towards others. And it's that same activity of either omission or inflation of things, yeah. Hmm. So job interviews are weird, huh? <laughs> because it's that territory of you want to have a job and you need to go on the job interview and often there's this thing of you've got to sell yourself. Well, you're asked to inflate yourself a little bit or a lot of it, <laughs> to really show that you have the knack of doing this job. But you also want to stay true to who you are. You don't want to be deceptive. Well, I would think most people don't want to be deceptive, but I know there's some people who out and out lie about their resume just to get the job. Then, you know, hopefully they don't get discovered that they're a fraud. But I think most people are um, not going to those lengths of deception. But it's a really odd process. <laughs> um, especially, you know, there's that part where, what are your strengths? And you speak to them, and that's what you've been pumping up. So what are your weaknesses? And it feels like a test. Are you really going to show your weaknesses? Or are you going to say you don't have them, and is that a lie? You know, what are they really looking at here? And, the, you know, I can, I know the feeling. I don't know the ex exact experience. I mean, a specific experience to bring forward, but 
Speaking of a, weak, of a weakness I have, but turning it into a strength in the process of owning it, so that it's a weakness, but I'm going to use it for a strength, you know? <laughs> and so there's even that slight manipulation of things for myself. And that might be this kind of, you know, the job interview might be a specific and somewhat contrived situation that illustrates what's going on all the time. So it's inflated in that situation. But in my experience with job interviews, I don't know about with yours, when certain questions come forth, I'm trying to genuinely respond to them, but there's also this, I wonder what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out, what are they really asking? So that interferes with me just giving my true response. It's me wondering what they're really asking that can interfere with me just giving my genuine response. Except for perhaps the last job interview I remember having it, and it was the last one I had. Um, at my former job. This was, I had been working there for years and this was for a different, a supervisor type position. And it was with somebody who was a new supervisor to that situation. So I don't know if I was, well, I was in the round of her first time to ever do interviews. And there was a team of people there doing the interview. And I can't remember, there were certain questions they asked that I was just like, what the fuck? Why are you asking that? Like, who's your role model? That was one. I was like, what does that have to do with me training people how to do social work? And, and the, the, the fact of the matter is, I don't have these role models in the way that I think they wanted. So I was just like, what? <laughs> and so in that moment, I gave up trying to think about what they wanted to hear, and I just thought about it, and I said, my son. That's what genuinely came up. And it was at that moment or before in the interview I figured, I don't want to play this game of trying to figure out what you want to hear. I'm just going to, you know, and I was like, I'm not getting this job. <laughs> I'm not getting this position. And that's fine. I'd rather just respond genuinely. And that's perhaps part of the reason it was my last job interview there. Because <laughs> a few months later I was like, yeah, everything else, like, it's time to wrap it up here. But it was just really odd and contrived. And... That's how life can be sometimes. Things feel like something's being contrived here and there's not genuineness coming from this side and that inhibits my ability to be genuine when I respond to it. So how to get beneath those things, yeah? How to, to find our way beneath them. Hmm. Lying also, it occurs to me, can be a way of trying to control things, trying to control the narrative. And that can be a lot of self-deception. We're trying to make things be what we think they are, control them, and we kind of remove ourselves from the live happening of it that way if we're trying to control things. And even to think we can control things is a big lie. <laughs> we can't. We I think we can own up to that in big and small ways here. We can't control things, but we can contribute to them and help them unfold and help them become what they become. We can't control and make them become exactly what we wish to, but we can influence that, right? 
So it's kind of nice if I relieve myself of that delusion that I have control over things. I don't invest my energy in trying to control things, which allows me to be more genuine in engaging in things and leading them into what they are to become, which might end up helping it get to where I'd like them to be more readily than when I'm trying to get them to be where I'd like them to be. Yeah? And that can probably flow into ourselves. Maybe that person I want to be, that I'm trying so hard to get to be, can find its way to itself when I stop trying to get there and just genuinely be here. Yeah? Come from this place with my flaws, with my strengths, with my weaknesses. <clears throat> so the last thing I'm bringing in, I think, is um, see, I just lied. <laughs> <laughs> the second to last thing I'll bring in is how this uh, quote from Dogen, the Dharma wheel turns from the beginning. There's never too much or too little. Everything is wet with dew, and the truth is ready to harvest. To me, that's coming to that place of resting here, trusting this here, and the flaws, and the non-flaws, and everything that I am. You know, this, this thing sounds like everything is wet with dew. It's fresh and it's alive. This is the birth of it, and it's ready to harvest. Moment by moment, the truth of who we are, the truth of what is, is ready to harvest. And it's not a clear and defined set truth. But everywhere we touch, we just let it come forth, that fresh dew. And that's that thing of not having to manipulate and control and try to make things something. Right here, this is it, it's enough. And we keep going and discovering the more of it, yeah? So when I think about that phrase and everything he says, I can get twisted up in a mind pretzel. But when I feel what he says, it's like, ah, I can relax into this right here, into myself, into what is, and operate from there. And let there, that place, call me forth to join with it. All right, so now the last thing I'll bring in. <laughs> <clears throat> it's been said that, um, and rightfully so, that the practice of Zen is the, is the perfection of character, the ongoing perfecting of character. Taking up precepts is about studying the character of who we are and, and quote-unquote, perfecting it. Um, Maybe instead of perfection, I would put in refining of character. Always refining it, because perfection has got a, a lot of baggage with that word, and it's a loaded concept, but the refining of character. So we have that going on. But there's also this... Hmm, this life at the core of the practice about being genuine and authentic. 
expressing your true self, seeing your true nature, those kind of things that come forward. So there's something about being genuine and authentic here. So when you hold those two together, especially if you have the perfection of character, instead of the refinement, but even both of those have this idea of becoming this really good person, becoming, you know, having a refined character makes you think, I mean, I start to sit up like that when I think of refined character. But if I'm going to be genuine, and this is something in, somebody else had shared, they had a conversation with Joan about, and I remember Joan mentioning this, uh, this idea is that you might find out in the course of becoming more in touch with your true self that you're kind of an asshole. And that's okay. That's not a problem. So we're not doing this practice to become compassionate and kind. We're doing it to be authentic. And you might really just be an asshole. <laughs> but I will take an authentic asshole over an artificial, compassionate person any day. Even though it's not so pleasant, you're like, ugh. But that goes hand in hand with refinement of character. Keep refining this and you might be an asshole. <laughs> maybe moment by moment, maybe that changes over time, but when you're an asshole, genuinely, that's all right, just be a genuine asshole. <laughs> and keep refining that. Become the best asshole you can be. <laughs> <laughs> But it, you know, the tendency seems to be the heart softens and the compassion comes, but it's coming authentically and genuinely, not artificially. And as I said, I think in this course of this series and other places, compassion isn't always soft and kind. It can be harsh and cruel and shocking. And that's why, you know, speaking those harsh truths might be the most compassionate thing we can do, offering it genuinely and authentically. And that's all that's really asked of us and all that's offered to us in this practice, how to connect with genuine being within us and around us. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more about Andrew Palmer and his teachings, please visit bowandroar.com and look for him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.